We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined today by Mark Dao, a communications specialist, a lecturer at AUB and LAU, and a political activist. Mark shares his impression of where the uprising is going, the momentum that's needed to sustain change, the political and economic fallout of the past three decades, and the youth factor when it comes to the uprising, which Mark considers critical, especially with social media. And his reference to Twitter is important, that people can now interact with politicians without connections, without favors or privilege. They simply express their views online for everyone to see. A blend of citizen journalism and a post-Civil War generation that wants a different Lebanon. We discuss all of the above for this episode of the Beirut Banyan with Mark Daou. I think this uprising is not comparable to anything we've seen before. Uh, the reason being this is a primarily a political movement. It's a revolution on political standards of sectarianism. It goes beyond a single topic or a single issue movement like 2015 when we had a big mobilization against the garbage crisis or in 2016 when we went all out through Beirut Medinity and other organizations to try and unlock the grip of those in power on municipalities. Or in 2017, when there was a series of protests mainly focused in Beirut about the taxation policy and the budget suggested by the government then. And then 2018 became more politicized. So there was a gradual development from garbage to municipalities, to taxation policies, to parliamentary perspective and legislative discourse, which ultimately matured into what we're seeing today, a mass movement with long, deep goals to really change governance in Lebanon and the political dynamics here. So you see this as a, it's almost a natural escalation from the post-2005 political political state of Lebanon. So in other words, what was not achievable 14, 15 years ago was, at least part of it was tried again in the Ustink movement, and now we're kind of combining all of the things together in one go? It's a maturing movement mm. of a new generation born post uh, the Civil War, mm. and then post the Syrian withdrawal from Lebanon, yeah. and then post the Israeli withdrawal from Lebanon. And oh, so it goes back to even... I, I, the people really doing the revolution today yeah. and putting the muscle and the time and the effort are people born after 2005. Yeah. Uh, they're 25 years old or 15, 16, 17. Yeah. You're literally looking at people doing their first political uh, activism and it's massive. Yeah. Uh, those people are uncompromising in their demands and highly politicized. Yeah. 2019 is 30 years after Ta'if was signed and the Berlin Wall fell 30 years ago. And exactly. It's striking to see what happened to Berlin and Germany the last three decades. It almost feels like we're still stuck in time three decades later. Is it simply that we're all fed up together for the first time? 
or is there something in your opinion that has really mobilized this upswell? Is it is it economics focused? Is it wanting a secular state? Well, where's the what's the core at, at all that we're seeing? Yeah, I I think there are layers to this. Mm. So one, we have the economic layer, the yeah. foundations of the economic model built in Lebanon uh, by the late Prime Minister uh, Rafi al-Hariri in the early 90s has overstretched itself um, given changing factors. Dubai wasn't the powerhouse it was. Saudi Arabia wasn't opening up. The digital economy did not exist. So we were looking at a landscape and a strategy to invest in particular sectors uh, that is absolutely different from the dynamics or the capabilities available today. So if someone told us in the 1990s we want to build an industrial powerhouse in Lebanon, that would make them the laughing stock. But today, if we talk about developing Lebanon as a digital light technology software development power hub, that's no joke. We've got the human capital, we've got the resources, but unfortunately we don't have the infrastructure. So I think the business model the economic model and the financial monetary model that was based on expat remittances and huge injections into the economy mm-hmm. and driving the government into big debts to stir growth, to incentivize growth, is no longer sustainable. So that's the first layer which I think just ran its course. You the mentioned second Dubai part, also. It's funny, to, I mean, 30 years ago, Dubai was a very unimportant financial part of the world. 100%. And it's it's astonishing to see how we have not kept up. That we've stagnated to the point that now it's almost unthinkable that we could match Dubai. 100%. But, but I sense there's an optimism there in that sentiment that you, you're holding out some room for hope this time around. Definitely, because I think the biggest asset we have is not natural resources, Mm -hmm. it's humans. And even with the little that we have, if we look at the incentives offered by Circular 331 from the central bank, $400 million, and then we look at the statistics, this particular population of ours has succeeded in creating the biggest number of startups Mm -hmm. in comparison to similar investments given by... Uh, other countries, we're we're matching up to the UAE and others, even with minimal money that we have. Yeah. And then, if we look at the Lebanese talent investing in various companies, all across uh, the Middle East, even in Europe, doing their startups, growing companies, then I think that shows the potential that we have there yeah. in catering to such a diverse and global market by by exporting a lot of ideas, softwares, or even light industries. I, I know a friend of mine. Uh, They've been successfully developing their capabilities and they've been exporting large numbers of highly technical fiber optic modems and connectors to companies like Facebook and Google and Tencent and others. So I think we're capable of doing that, not to mention creative industries such as the movie industry, uh, what we've seen with Nadine Labake and others, as well as uh, the fashion industry designs. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get global interior or uh, 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 furniture designers also coming out from Lebanon. A few friends also are working on that and they're going getting good results. So I think the investment in human capital for us to export the right type of material is now visibly in reach. So there is a business model that needs to be changed. And I think that would require a liberalization of the market so we can actually help 
this economy grow rather than the very centralized, uh, government-driven, uh, highly monopolized uh, industrial sectors. So the government runs the internet, the mobile networks, um, the importation of certain uh, fuel products, uh, the only airline, the only casino. Yeah. There's just so many industrial sectors are monopolized by government yes. or by corporations associated with the government. This which links basically to crony capitalism. To exactly. Yeah. It's an oligarchic system, yeah. highly controlled by those in power and yes. their allies. So let's going back to Nadine Lebege, which is a great example of somebody that put Lebanon on the map in times of crisis. We have a Syrian refugee, over a million refugees. We have an economic collapse. And yet we're shining. We're an Oscar-nominated director who's putting Lebanon on the scene. Uh, we have Ziad Dwaydi a few years ago as well, Oscar-nominated filmmaker. Very true. Um, and these people, their their talents are so well appreciated abroad, and they can succeed. And Ziad Dwaydi has remained abroad. Uh, Mashur Leila, just earlier this summer, probably the most recognizable Lebanese band in the world, yet Spot unable, on. That's it. unable yes. to perform here because of, I'm guessing going back to what you're saying, the structure, the infrastructure, is it simply a matter of upending what we have? Or is there, in your opinion, is there a possibility for reforming what we have? Because it's 1989 is not, 1989 is just cosmetic surgery to what Lebanon had before, this old way of power sharing. And it's not something that we think of on a daily basis, even though it occupies everyone's life. Yeah. In, in your opinion, is it is it a state that can be reformed? Is it an infrastructure that can be fixed? Or does this really need a complete overhaul, an overthrow of what we've lived with, our lives, our grand, our parents, our grandparents, yeah. and, and before? I think this is the second level besides the, the economic track which has run its course. I mm -hmm. think the second one is uh, the type of citizenry we have now with the new generation, uh, post-social media individuals. And I think those individuals no longer see the distinctions that have framed the political mind of citizens living in Lebanon in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Oh, and you see a difference between that generation and today? Massive difference. I think those people have created part of their lives is virtual. And in the virtual mm. space, they have open public areas, which are called WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups, <laughs> and pages. Yeah. And those people are constantly interacting, generating ideas, reinforcing identities, and creating new groups and forms of loyalty. Yes. And I don't think the traditional system that we have of loyalty to region, sect, and by, by reference to a Zaim or a, a local leader yeah. anymore is sustainable. You will always have emotions and legacies and cultural uh, uh, inheritance mm -hmm. given to those people. Yeah. But I don't see it anymore as a sustainable, growing um, system that can, into the future, be relevant to people being born after 2000. Those people yeah. are no longer capable of understanding the mindset of there's someone more important than we are just because they were born into something mm. that doesn't work. So I, you know, I, I spoke to Nayla Twaini a few days ago about social media 
and how people are interacting with this revolt. And she mentioned people find Nahar through Twitter, through Instagram, through Facebook. It's almost a reversal that you go through social media to go to the old traditional outlets. And we're talking about, you're absolutely right, people identify in, in new ways, communities are being formed in, in strange and interesting ways too. But at the end of the day, the body politic of Lebanon has survived. And we had an election not that long ago. The old order was kept. Is it just a matter of waiting for this younger generation to grow up so that the elections change, so that new leadership emerges? Or do you think they're going to fall trap to the ways we have interacted with the state and the ways our parents have? In other words, the psychological barrier, does it actually, does social media tear down the psychological wall, this buffer zone between communities? Or does it actually just, at the end of the day, cope with it and yeah. then... I'll give you an example. Not to be too uh, pessimistic, but yeah. I mean, because it's putting a lot of hope on this yeah. younger generation. Um, I think it's interesting. In the old days, you needed to know someone who knew someone to sit with a prime minister. Now, yeah. you just need your Twitter account, <laughs> and you'll say your opinion. So there's no in-between. Right. And uh, honestly, I don't see it's only a generational thing. Uh, in... This system is so well entrenched because in its heyday it could offer something. A job in government, a contract, uh, hey a day, policy. Pre-Civil War or, or post? Post-1990, post post yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it was full force, probably even after 2000. Yeah. Uh, so you were spending money left, right and center. You were making people rich. You were offering jobs, big compensations, guaranteed stability. Uh, you were giving subsidized house loans for 30 years. Yeah. You were giving credit cards, cheap cars, cheap oil, cheap electricity. You were literally giving everything to sustain that system. Yes. We're, for the past 15 years, we've been selling electricity in Lebanon to the public for less than the cost of production. Like we're literally subsidizing everyone's um, lifeline. And what's happening now is that is no longer sustainable. So the new generation does not want to be an officer in the army and does not want uh, just to be satisfied with someone getting them a job. They want to achieve something, something which is beyond just material scoring or a bank account. We see a lot of those people, even poor people, who are looking for a purpose and they're more happy with the number of likes and instant gratification on Facebook than in uh, working for a lifetime for a particular company to reach a particular position. Everyone feels entitled to their own lifestyle and I think that is what is starting to tear down the very rigid hierarchical political structures and even patriarchal structures that we have in society today. So technology in a way is leveling the Lebanese by making all communities, by making communities irrelevant and by making individuals the same. Yes, it's improving meritocracy versus yeah. other more traditional hierarchies in society. So let's, let's take the optimistic route. Let's say that technology has within it the power to elevate an individual not just sitting down with the Prime Minister on Twitter, but potentially for sending a photo and making it seen by thousands and hundreds of thousands and then people emotionally joining on that journey, all demanding one thing together. 
you can project, let's, we're now in week three of the current uprising. Let's project a, project a year from now. Do you think this upswell is going to lead to structural change? And I mean this in, in, a, in a purely hypothetical way. Do you think the momentum that we're watching has within it the tools necessary? This includes technology, this includes all the things we're talking about. That a year from now, Lebanon will be in a better place. Because I, I want to keep the optimism alive and I want to... Um, I, I think there are two scenarios to that. Sure, yeah. Two scenarios for the optimistic group. Or, Not or the optimistic. One, yeah. So what, what could happen next? I yeah. think uh, either the revolution is successful in achieving a lot of things yeah. and that will get a lot of people involved and thus we'll start seeing new political parties gaining a lot of ground and support, defined leadership, uh, more malleable, more flexible. We'll see probably um, a Macron moment or something mm. like the new parties emerging all across the world, uh, Podemos, Syriza, anything you like, even uh, Trump or others, just mass new movements yes. that come out of nowhere and suddenly become mainstream. Right. So that would be a, a good scenario, not yeah. Trump, but that good would be Lebanon a good scenario for Lebanon, yeah. that there's a big wave that literally wipes out all remaining existing old parties yeah. that would basically be reduced from the mainstream. Right. Uh, the bad case scenario, the worst case scenario would be uh, people do not achieve what they're expecting to and thus they go and cocoon themselves away from mainstream politics and work on more uh, non-mainstream ideas. So we see a lot of flourishing of NGOs, of small initiatives, yeah. of people not actively participating in politics, yeah. but building small structures around the mainstream until they're ready for a second round that triggers and everyone floods into the main street again. So and you see that happening now, the, the beginnings of that. You see that there's a... No, we're still in full-fledged attack mode attack on government. Mode. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a few months, at least from where I stand now, mm -hmm. that this would uh, go away. This is so deep now, I think, and has so much momentum. Uh, for example, today, uh, students from various universities literally left class and blocked the roads around their universities. Right, right. Uh, that is not something planned. That's just 18-year-olds taking things into their own hands. And I think that's massive. That is not a detail. But do you think time is a factor here? Because I know the three weeks sounds like it's nothing. At the same time, it is taxing on people to keep pushing and pushing. And over time, people do tend to just fall back to familiar routine. Yeah. Do you think that the length of this is detrimental to getting to the next stage? I think time is not a negative factor. On no. the contrary, yeah. uh, time is giving us space for us to think, plan, organize better, which means be ready for a longer term shift. As I said, I really believe this is a structural shift in how politics is run in the country. So I'm looking at the long term, not the short term. And uh, worst case scenario, there's an upcoming election in two years from now. So it's not that long term anyways, because elections would open up in, in 12 months. Right. So that's when you start campaigning. So. What we're seeing now, I think, is time is helping us organize, get to connect more. Now we're seeing Tripoli and Beirut and Beirut and Tripoli and others going all across, which I think will help build the momentum and build national parties. That is on our side. Which hasn't happened until now. 
there hasn't been a genuinely national party. Not yet, but there been are... There's at it, but it's never yeah. actually... Yeah. I think that would take a bit of time because we're still surprised three weeks in That's and true. we're just getting to know the names of the other people, right? Yeah. So I think that will that's bound to happen. Mm. Plus, I think there's a lot of legislative as well as a lot of issues on the table in reference to the budgets and taxation and government policies and corruption that will give enough meat for the revolution to chew on and to attack targeted strikes at particular issues. So the unraveling of the system will be through a series of systematic blows and punches to the weak points or the places where you can maintain that mobilization. So we'll be smarter in selecting topics. It's not a mass blitzkrieg attack on all of the institution, but it will be a longer term, more focused and more result-oriented uh, strikes uh, as things look now. But mass mobilization, like in Hong Kong, or Algeria and other countries, or the Gilets jaunes in, in France, this will be an ongoing, repetitive mm -hmm. sequence of mass mobilizations across the country to try and get good results. So it really is a reform for, it's a, it is a revolution for reform, in a sense. It's not a, we're going to throw out the regime and put something in overnight. It is building a new regime. It's not only about reform, it's beyond reform. Beyond it's reform. beyond bad policies. Yeah. This is about how are we going to live our lives as citizens in this country. Yeah. We no longer belong to political parties. We yeah. shape public opinion. This is the major point we have now. There's a real public opinion holding people accountable. Now, up until day 19, which is where we are, uh, there have been only a few names that have circulated as potential leadership for what you're seeing. For the most part, for the most part, it's been a leaderless movement. And, I mean, y your name is one of the names that we've seen, and we've seen interviews on TV, we've seen a few people emerging, but they're not the leaders. It's not that there's one person you can say, yeah, that represents the revolt. No, it's, it's a few people that are talking, explaining what this is about, but up until now, I can't think of a name or a, a or even a team to usher us in. Is that a good thing at this point? That there, that this is a really grassroots initiative. That there's not one or two or a team. Yeah. This is really just citizens demanding. They're blocking the roads on their own. They're they're doing things their way. Or is leadership necessary to take this to something? Part of the maturing movement is identifying leadership. And I think what's interesting about this experience is that the leadership is being vetted through public exposure. Yes. So uh, media interviews, uh, their Facebook posts, uh, meetings, ideas, initiatives, organizational skills, there's a real vetting process happening yeah. for grassroots, homegrown, uh, local leaders, women and men, young and old, um, experienced and newbies, who are all uh, really either succeeding or failing or progressing or developing. So things are moving forward. And I think it's only a matter of time because before those people start uh, coalescing into coalitions and groups which are better defined. And through uh, the quality of their opinions and analysis and the quality of their work and team yeah. spirit, they will only uh, 
sustain that position and gain influence into further reaches and among a bigger uh, population of supporters. I like the way you describe it, that there's an open vetting. And this doesn't usually happen, and it actually never happens in Lebanon, that the public is vetting their leadership, as opposed to the leadership slicing up the pie. Exactly. And that's a, it's a healthy thing for this country, for the public to be properly engaged in politics. I sense that this is the first time that Lebanese are properly involved. And I'm going to touch on a sensitive subject. Corruption, and I mean trash, sewage, pollution, electricity, clean water, and the list is so long with what corruption has done to this country. And it's a sensitive question. These, these noble goals of, of fixing the country and improving the lives of the average Lebanese, are they achievable so long as there is, that the state is not sovereign, that there are, that there are, the, the use of violence is not determined by the state alone, that there are groups that do have leverage over the security, or for that matter, the foreign policy of Lebanon. And that's going on a broader scale. Because I know trash and traffic and these things and, and weapons, they're not naturally, you don't see them on the same page. But so sovereignty is an important thing for the maturity of a country, or at least independence. Do you see that issue being touched on now? And if it's not touched on, do you think it needs to be to, in order to properly address structural problems in Lebanon? Yeah. Uh, I think the fight we're doing now, the revolution, is reclaiming uh, the country for its citizens. And I think when all citizens recognize that this country is their own, a part of those citizens can no longer hijack the will of the country. And is there, uh, is there a stepping stone? Is there an order to this? Or is it all, all things need to be addressed together? I think it's a progressive thing. The more power you have, the more organization, the harder and the more complex the topics you will be capable of focusing on. So the first uh, item on the agenda was let's get this government to resign. Then we came to the second one, which is uh, let's create a government. And breaking something is not like fixing it. So now we're trying to fix a governance and a system and a group of people who can actually save this country. Then we have to go into the policies. And then we'll have to go into the general policies and strategies to help this country. And I think the more we progress, the more we will need to organize, define leadership, set a program, see the different perspectives, evaluate them, and then take action. So issues like privatization or Hezbollah's arms or foreign policy or Syrian refugees, there are no easy answers and no one holds the ultimate truth. What we need to do is make sure that we maintain and progress in our democracy and our sovereign decision-making and independent decision-making and we have functional institutions that are not manipulated by sectarian, religious, or uh, corruption, or foreign powers. So we're capable of reaching an agreement and capable of developing policies that gain legitimacy, not necessarily approval from everyone, but at least legitimacy through trusted institutions. And you see that in the mix here, that there is a the beginnings of that, that the state is capable of handling all of its affairs. 
I would, I would like to believe so. Yeah. Uh, it's not tested. There are a lot of ifs yeah. uh, if we're analyzing, but I think we have it in us. We just need to make sure we get it done. And Mark, just to wrap it up, your own personal ambition with this revolution right now, how do you see your own individual role in shaping what's happening or maybe influencing or being part of it? What is your individual role today? As an activist for a very, very long time, uh, at some points you feel like you're a lone wolf or a lone sheep in a, a very dark forest. And what's happening now, you're surrounded with people. My ultimate goal would bunch, be for those... Of sheep together in the dark exactly. forest. Exactly. <laughs> Suddenly it's a, a sheep stampede yeah, yeah. running in the forest. So uh, if, if this keeps on going, I'd like to see... Uh, all of us in a big, massive national party that makes a long-term, committed, uh, real revolution in the sense of cultural, social, and on every level where we basically usher this country into the 21st democratic, secular list of states. Well, I look forward to seeing you in various outlets, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. Thank you. episodes on a daily basis as the uprising continues. If you're enjoying this podcast, kindly contribute through the Patreon link in the details box. And if you want to stay updated, simply subscribe to your preferred podcast platform or go to our YouTube channel. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan.